Good evening. Let's open to Matthew chapter 22 and 23 as our goal this evening. As we look at these two chapters, the Lord has a little less than a week before he will be betrayed. And as we pick it up, let's look at the last verse so you get a feel for the flow of chapter 21 into 22. I um, entitled this particular section, 22 and 23. They're going to go after him in 22, and then the Lord is going to go after them in chapter 23. So the last verse of 21 says, But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So as we begin chapter 22, when the Lord says, Jesus answered and spoke to them, the them that he's referring to is not the multitudes, but the the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, We're going to be introduced in this chapter to Herodians and Pharisees and uh, the Sadducees. So we find in this parable of the marriage feast, In response to verse 46, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged his marriage for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Um, We have in verse 2, The king would be a reference to God the Father. Of course, the son um, is Jesus. And those who were bidden would have been the, um, would have been Israel. Uh, Those that were sent out would have been the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. So it is a parable, but the king would be God the Father, the son would be Jesus. And those who were bidden would have been Israel. And, of course, they rejected um, the Lord, and they rejected the apostles. Now, in verses 3 through 7, we have the Lord saying, again, he sent out other servants, and I think he has in view here John the Baptist, actually. Uh, And those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fatted calf are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. Uh, But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. And I think that's a reference here to um, John the Baptist, Old Testament prophets. Um, We read in Hebrews that um, um, Isaiah was probably sawn in half. And we read here in verse 7, but when the king heard about it, this would have been the father, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. I believe verse 7 is a reference that, well, flip over just to, to Luke 19 real quick, and I'll tie this together. Luke 19, this would have been the triumphal entry. Instead of receiving the Lord, the Pharisees rebuked the Lord. And then we read in verse 43, 
Uh, For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is a prophecy. This is uh, April 632 A.D., 38 years later, and I'll go back to Matthew 22, verse 7. 38 years from that time in 70 AD, this is exactly what happened. Uh, Rome came down, surrounded Jerusalem, completely destroyed the city, and um, because they rejected the Lord, he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation, now we have in verse 7, the Lord, the king is going to be furious because they re- rejected his son. And the armies that come and destroy the city and burn their city, that's exactly what happened um, in 70 AD. How many of you have your news bites? Just, if you have them, just turn to um, where they're talking about Current events, um, Bibi is once again allowing uh, people to go up to the Temple Mount. Now in 2015, if you read it, I was reading it before the study tonight, um, they had a lot of terrorist activity, there was a big uprising, and um, they put the kibosh on anybody that was um, uh, involved with the government going up on the Temple Mount. Well, uh, he just reversed that, and he's... uh, allowing people once again to go up there. Then it makes reference to the, to, uh, the ninth of Av. Um, on the ninth of Av, Solomon's temple was destroyed. And on the ninth of Av in 70 AD, that temple was destroyed also, both on the same dates. And I think it makes reference to that uh, in that article. So verse 7 as because they rejected the Lord. It says the king was furious, and he set out his armies, destroyed those murders, and burned their city. That is a fact of history. It happened on the, on the 9th of Av in 70 AD. Verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite in to the wedding. And so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, How did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. I'll come back to verse 12. Um, What is a wedding garment? For that, we need to turn to the book of Romans. So let's flip over to Romans chapter 3. The king's invitation was rejected by Israel, but the king's invitation is actually open for everyone. But there's a danger of coming without meeting the demands of the king. That wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ, which is absolutely essential for salvation. 
So the righteousness, if you're in Romans 3, let's pick it up in verse 21 and 22. It says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all, and on all who believe, and there is no difference. And then this famous verse, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Good place for an amen. All have sinned and fallen short. So what is a righteous garment? Let's go back to Matthew 22. We read that there was somebody who was trying to get in, but he was getting in. We would use the terminology today, well, I'm a Christian, go to church, put 20 bucks in the plate when it goes by, and um, yet they're not born again. Um, the Lord was speaking to Nicodemus, who was a very religious man, but he wasn't born again. And there are many religious people. Matter of fact, all of chapter 23 is the Lord's disdain against the religious hierarchy that existed at that time. So when we read in verse um, 11, but when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment, is simply stating he was there in his own self-righteousness. And in the next verse, um, it said, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. I've heard people say, well, um, If I get there, I get there. If I don't, I don't. And they begin to make their case. Well, the Bible declares that someday at the great white throne judgment, the books will be opened and they'll be judged every man, it says, according to their works, their own righteousness. This man was speechless. And as I thought about this, I got up early this morning and I was studying and I was was just thinking it through Um, if you're there to make your case and the books are open and everything is revealed, you will be speechless. And that's exactly what happens here. There won't be anything to your defense that you can say because it's all written down. And so, and he was speechless. I don't think anybody at the great white throne judgment is going to be there trying to make his case when the evidence is, is laid out. Then the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We read that, but um, I don't know if you've ever seen a person wail um, and, and, and weep uncontrollably. Probably one of the largest funerals I ever did was for Betty Dunham and um, Carnet when she went to be with the Lord about three years ago. And it was uncontrollable. I mean, I, I, it was traditional Haiti, but the love they had for Betty was such that there was open wailing, and they in no way wanted to hide their feelings and emotion. And when it came time to do the service, I said, Bastia, we, I need to talk to the people and tell them that now is the time that we're going to teach the word, and, and it's time for people to settle in. But I bet you there, this went on for a, a whole hour as, as people were coming in um, 
to, to, see, to see Betty. Wailing and gnashing of teeth is um, a description that um, uh, I think we read over it sometimes too quickly. The reality, the finality, there's nothing you can do about it. We're going to be in Luke 16 in just a little bit when we talk about um, um, the Lord being the Lord of the living and, and not the dead. But as we wind this first part up, let's review just a little bit. In chapter 22, it dovetails back to verse 46, where they want to kill the Lord, and, but they couldn't because of the multitudes. They took him as a prophet. So he speaks this parable. He says, look, I came to you, and I desired that you would come. I invited you, but everybody that I used, like Jeremiah, they call him the weeping prophet for a reason, John the Baptist, um, the greatest man who ever lived. They killed him. And uh, we're going to be reading a verse in a little bit. The heart of the father here is, Jesus says, he's like a, a mother hen wanting to bring her chicks underneath her. And that speaks of the emotion of the father's heart. He loved Israel. And even though he sent messengers to them, uh, they not only rejected him, but they killed the very instruments that God used. And as a result, uh, verse 7, as we go through this again, uh, the repercussions along with Luke 19, if you're taking notes, is that Jerusalem will be destroyed because they did not know the time of the Messiah's coming. And then it says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, in verse 15, we're introduced to the Herodians, um, but the Pharisees, let's read down just 16 so you can see we're talking about the Herodians here. <clears throat> then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. And let's just stop right there and I'll explain to you who the uh, Herodians are. The Herodians were a political party. Um, they favored uh, King Herod. Um, and they looked to Herod to deliver them from Rome along with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and the Herodians had something in common. Um, they were a political party that was hoping that King Herod would be used to deliver them from Rome. So they pose this question about taxes in Caesar. Um, teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God in truth, and you don't care about anyone, for you do not regard the persons of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now let's go back and tie that in with verse 15, where it says they got together, they got a huddle, and they said, how can we trap this guy? We want to kill him, so let's get him in a corner and ask him a question that he can't give the right answer to. Either way he answers it, he's caught. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they showed him a denarius. 
Now, you might ask the question, why didn't he use, why didn't he reach in his pocket? Well, I got his cough drops, sorry. And that's all the Lord had in his. Why didn't the Lord use his own coin? Because I don't think he had one. Why do you say that, Dwight? Well, when it actually came time to pay taxes, Peter brought up the question, Lord, should we do this or shouldn't we do this? Um, And he says to keep all things lawful. Tell you what, go fishing. And when you catch your first fish, he's going to have some money in his mouth. And you take that money and pay our taxes. So I think that, don't you think that's a pretty good case that the Lord didn't have any change in his pocket? And, um, you know, he was always inviting himself to dinner. Zacchaeus, come on down from the tree. I'm having supper at your house tonight. (laughs) And he was always staying with Mary and Martha. And the people that traveled with him, I'm sure, took care of him. Matter of fact, remember when he set out the disciples? He says, don't take your money. And when you enter into a person's house, um, say peace be on this house, and, and they'll take care of you. So I kind of laugh at this. So show, they asked him, show, so they showed him a denarius, and he said, well, whose image and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, okay, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So, um, let's see. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. All right, one down, two to go. They didn't have an answer for that. And... um, now we're introduced to the Sadducees. So we just are introduced. First one was, was the Herodians. So 22 through 23, the Sadducees um, were different from the Pharisees. The division is that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection and angels. The Sadducees did not believe in either one. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. Paul actually used that to his um, credit one day when he was in a hot spot. He knew how to divide the Sadducees from the Pharisees. He just said, I believe in the resurrection. And all of a sudden he split (laughs) the room because he made that statement. So it's the same day, verse 23 through 33, we're dealing with the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. There we have it. And they came to him and asked him and said, Teacher, now Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, hypothetical situation. There were seven brothers. The first died after he had married. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, he died. Then the third then the fourth, then the fifth, then the sixth, and then the seventh. And last of all, the woman finally died. So remember, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're trying to pin him down. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now they thought for sure they had the Lord cornered here. And um, the Lord 
said to them in verse 29, he says, you guys are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And we'll actually learn something in this about what happens to us when we go to heaven. I was talking to um, Ellen, are you here tonight? I don't see her, she was at the baptism. Any of you guys that missed the baptism with something special? Where was I? Let's go back here. Oh, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now I know I got sidetracked because Ellen was telling to, talking to me about her husband who's had passed and gone, is in heaven. And she says, you know, I just can't wait um, to see my husband again. And... Um, People sometimes say, well, are are we going to know each other when we get to heaven? And my response to that is, are you going to be dumber then than now? (laughs) No. You will know, what does it say? You will know as you're known. And you're going to go up to guys like Moses and Elijah and go, you're Moses and you're Daniel. Well, how do I know? Well, the Bible says, I will know as I am known. And so we can't grasp all that right now. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about that reality. Well, here it gives some clarification about um, man and wife right now. So, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels of God in heaven. The first thing that needs to be clarified here is that you're not going to be an angel, okay? Um, You're the bride. And, um, but concerning the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, let me get back to the marriage thing? The reason, the primary reason that God um, created Adam and Eve was to have the reproduction process so that there would be many that could come to know him, could choose. And so um, we know that it's the act of marriage where it says the uh, marriage bed is not defiled. And one of the primary function of marriage is the reproduction. But in heaven, there won't be any more added. When that number is perfect and complete, according to Romans, is fulfilled, there won't be any more. And we'll be numbered a certain amount of, of people that will be saved who will be the bride of Christ. So you won't be married in heaven. Um, yes, of course, you'll know your mate. But you'll be complete and uh, the reproduction process is no longer uh, in play. Uh, Verse 31, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now let's just stop here and I'm going to have you turn with me to Luke chapter 16. He's the God of Abraham. He's not the God of the dead. So when Abraham died, they buried him, but he never died. Nobody ever dies. Whenever I do a funeral, I says that's not the that's really not the issue or the question. Everybody here, and then pretend it's a funeral, everybody here is going to live forever because you're a spirit and you have a soul, and that's eternal. 
just like the angels are eternal, the reason that there's a hell is because of the demons and Lucifer. It says the hell was created for the devil and his angels. So to make the point that Abraham is still alive, in Luke chapter 16, we find, I'll pick it up, verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the, the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. And lifting and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham afar off. Okay, the Lord is taking the Sadducees on, who don't believe in the resurrection. And the Lord's response to that is that he's the God of the living, not the dead. And he refers to the God of Abraham. Well, here's Abraham in verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of a finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, okay, dead people don't speak. Abraham is alive and well. And he, is court, he can talk with the man who's in the other chamber which is hell, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Now ordinarily I'd stop here, but again, when we were talking about wailing, and gnashing of teeth, and the finality. That it says there's once to die, and what's the rest of the verse? And then the judgment. This guy's going to be resurrected someday. It'll be after the thousand years, and this rich man who's in hell, as I speak tonight, someday is going to be resurrected. But the awareness, probably for the first time in his life, He's actually thinking about his family that he does not want to come to this place. And so, verse 27, then he said, if I can't be comforted, and the reality of that setting in, the finality, that he's never going to leave this place of torment throughout all eternity. That's why the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. And uh, we should actually ponder that, that it creates a good, healthy fear of the Lord, but it also creates a burden. If we really believe this, family members um, that aren't saved. And so we read in verse twenty-seven: "I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. You see, I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment." Sometimes we don't like to do that because it causes problems. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that you got saved and Jesus loves me. I don't want to hear it. Let me encourage you not to give up doing that and keep doing that. Why? Well, because if they die in their sins, they're going to end up with the rich man forever and ever and ever. And here, 
if that's his fate, then now, maybe for the first time, he's saying, well, could you please send somebody? And isn't that what we pray for? Lord, whatever it takes. They gotta go through whatever tragedy or whatever to bring them to a place of repentance. Good place for an amen. I mean, whatever it takes. If we take this literally, and this guy is in there, and he's aware that he ain't going anywhere. Well, Abraham said to him, so Abraham's alive, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Oh, really? There was a man named Lazarus who was raised from the dead, and a lot of people got saved. But what about the Pharisees? They said, we really got a problem now. Not only do we have to kill Jesus, but many people are believing because Lazarus, we know, was dead for four days. We're going to have to kill him too. So even though one would raise from the dead, they will repent. But he said, no. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, or basically saying if they don't respect God's word, and they think they can get in some other way, neither will they be persuaded though one would rise from the dead And I always thought it was interesting that this guy's name is Lazarus, and uh, he did rise from the dead. Okay, the last verse. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So now we have in verses 34 through 36 this question. But when the Pharisees heard that, that he had silenced the Sadducees. Now they gathered together, and one of them was a lawyer, and asked him a question, testing him and saying, so now they got a guy that was sharp with, with the law, and they Pharisees put this guy up to ask this question. He says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, well, you shall love the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And we we read also that these two commandments actually completely summarize the entire law, The answer of the Lord here was so obviously accurate that if the Pharisees had been honest, they would have said, we've fallen short, we cannot be saved by the law, we do need a Savior. And at that time the Lord came, the Savior was almost under the shadow of the cross. Remember, this is his final week here. Verse 41, second question. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, well, then how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, 
How can he be his son? Now, I'm going to have you turn with me because this is a prophecy. This is Psalm 110. So I'm going to have you turn back to Psalm 110. And remember, uh, as we go through the Gospels, we can't do a Wednesday night study, we can't do a Sunday morning, without exception of having an Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. And here, and the reason I want you to turn is I actually want you to see it because it is, it's being ful- fulfilled right here. If you look at the first um, couple of verses, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. So the Lord is telling the Pharisees that he's in the spirit when he's making a statement because it's in the, in the Psalms. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, ruler in the midst of your enemies. So the Lord said to my Lord, uh, this is a searching question. I'm going to quote a little bit of J. Vernon McGee here as he comments on, on this prophecy. McGee says, this is a searching question which our Lord put to the Pharisees. There are several implications in this question, which are tremendous. Our Lord said that David wrote Psalm 110, that he wrote it by the Holy Spirit, and that he wrote it about the Messiah. Now, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? How could David call his son superior unless he was? And the only logical answer to the question is the virgin birth. Jesus is David's son, but he's still greater than David. A son greater introduced into the line to make a greater son. The record of the supernatural birth of Jesus affords the only satisfactory answer. The Lord of David got into David's line as stated in Luke's gospel, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Ghost will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore, also the holy thing which shall be born of thee, because he he is called the Son of God. He is greater than David because he is the Lord from heaven. The Lord Jesus was forcing the Pharisees to face up to the real issue and to acknowledge him as David's son and as David's Lord, then this is going to end the verbal clash with the religious leaders. So let's go back to the last verse of um, of uh, ch- chapter 22. <laughs> and I have to laugh. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. You just don't play mind games with the creator of the mind. He knows what you're going to say before you say it, and he knows how to answer you every time you think he's going to trap you. Well, when we started the study, I mentioned that in chapter 22, they're going to go after Jesus. As we get to chapter 23, Now the Lord goes after them. Now Jesus is addressing the multitudes about the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, 
Here we see gentle Jesus using the harshest language that is in the entire word of God. Can I say that again? This is some of the strongest condemnation in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, there are eight times that Jesus is going to use the word woe. And when the Lord uses the word woe, it's woe. And then he uses um, the word hypocrites seven times. So let's pick it up. After he had silenced the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, put them all in their place, now he turns around and he begins to warn the multitudes about basically religion. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes And to the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say, and they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." Even after there wasn't um, 13, uh, 10 commandments, there were 613. But what happened over time is they would begin to add on to what wasn't part of the law. They gave restrictions how far you could walk on a certain day. And they kept adding religious obligations. And if you had a question and you didn't have an answer, you went to... to, uh, one of the scribes of the Pharisees, and they would just make, many times, your life more difficult rather than, than uh, making it easier. It says, all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now, a phylactery, uh, when we go to Israel, we see the observant Jews, they will wrap it around their arms. It's a piece of leather that, that's wrapped around and um, they make it enlarged, so that's it. Make sure you don't miss it. I'm wearing mine today. Here it is. And they love the best places at feast, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplace, and they like to be called rabbi, rabbi, or teacher, teacher. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you're all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Well, this was just the opposite of the show that that the Pharisees and the scribes would put on. Their outward um, expression is what the Lord is denouncing here. And whoever exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's the first woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. It was the scribes and the Pharisees who were the ones that were trying to trap their own Messiah. And uh, because of their position, they had influence, and they exercised their influence um, 
for them not to follow the Lord Jesus. The second woe, verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Um, but prosperity teachers today have no problem while they're on TV uh, encouraging you to send your seed faith to their organization and if you do, God will bless you 100 times greater. And unfortunately, um, there are little old ladies on Social Security that are watching. They're impressed with the TV preacher. And as a result, they'll send in some of their Social Security money that they can't afford to do. And uh, that's what uh, they devour widows' houses. And we have that taking place today. One of the reasons that we don't, um, um, we talk about money if we're going through a Bible study that deals with it. But um, we don't take um, a collection on Sunday. Sometimes people will come as visitors and they'll sit and they're just waiting for me to say something about money. <laughs> and then it doesn't happen. And they'll, they'll leave with their friend and he says, he didn't talk about money. Why didn't he talk about money? He says, because we just teach through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. He says, I can't believe they didn't talk about money. (laughs) And for pretense, they make a long prayer. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. This happened to me. I've told the story before, but I'll tell it quickly again. We were at the Wailing Wall, and um, off to the left, there's a chamber. It's a library. And there's prayer books in there, and um, maybe it's 100, 150 feet in, no more than 20 feet across. And I like to go in there just to watch um, the Orthodox. And uh, I got a tap on my shoulder, and um, it was an Orthodox Jewish man. Um, he had his robes on, and he said, I'd like to pray for you. Can we go into the back room here? I thought, well, this is interesting. Why not? So he goes back and he says, well, what's your name? I said, Dwight. Well, what's your wife's name? I said, Judy. And I said, can I pray for you and your wife? And I said, sure. And so he went into this long prayer and um, praying for our group. He says, you're, you're from the States, right? I said, no, I'm from the States. And he prayed for a good, I bet you, four or five minutes. He just... And I thought, well, this is great. I'll, I'll pray for him. So when he said amen, I just started in praying for Israel and, and praying for the Jewish people. I think I said, Lord, I know, Genesis, that you will bless those who bless you and you will curse those that curse you. Just bless this guy for being concerned enough to pray for me and my wife and our group. And he was shocked that I prayed. I mean, we were all by ourselves in some back little corner. And I said, amen. And I said, well, i got to get back to my group. And he followed me. And he tapped me on his shoulder again. And he says, well, you know, we got this, this drive going on right now for a good cause. Would you like to donate it for it? And I thought, man, this verse came to mind. For a long prayer, they make a pretense. It was all a show. Bob Bennett wrote a song, Panhandling at the Wailing Wall, because <laughs> it happened to him, too. Uh, he, the same wasn't the same guy, but 
Yeah, it offended Bob so much he wrote a song about it. You don't want to get Bob mad. He'll write a song about you. (laughs) Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to one, one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. That's, that's firm. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Um, the Pharisees were teaching that if you swore by the temple or the altar, you were not bound to uh, to keep your oath. But if you swore by the gold of the temple or by the gift of the altar, the oath was binding. And they were splitting hairs, of course, and they were placing the emphasis on material things rather than upon the spiritual purpose for which they were to be used. Now listen to the Lord's strong denunciation. Verse 18, whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gift, fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, and here's the Lord's response, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwell in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe of a mint and anise and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. They were so meticulous. Everybody knows what a piece of mint is. You can go out in your backyard, take one little mint, and put it in your tea or something. Well, they'd take one little mint, and they would cut it in ten pieces, and they would tithe on that one piece of mint. And um, and anise and cumin. And they would go to that length, but they would neglect things like mercy and justice and faith. What does the Lord require of you and me but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God? That's what we're supposed to do. Not get into the outward religious um, activities that describes the Pharisees. Remember, now he's speaking to the multitudes. You ought to have done uh, without leaving the other undone. So the Lord isn't saying you shouldn't tithe. Actually, he's saying here, you should. Those you ought to have done. But, but that's uh, not the main point. The main point is justice and mercy and faith. Blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. I think that's hilarious. As they strain at a little gnat, and then they're able to swallow a whole camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of extortion, self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful 
outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. And, you know, in your own mind eyes, you can know who I'm talking about when I talk about um, the gowns and the robes. And some of them are different colors, depending upon what rank you have um, in certain denominations. And they have orders, and you can tell where you are in a scale up the ladder by what color the clothing that you wear. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we have lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Now he calls them serpents. He's just adding on. And a brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now that's pretty direct. That's not being very seeker-sensitive at all. (laughs) And I hope you see the humor in that. Because that's where the church is at today. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about hell. It's going to offend people. You're going to make them uncomfortable. Yeah. I hope it makes, if, if, uh, if a person isn't saved, and my goal is to make you feel good so that you feel warm fuzzies when you walk out of the door, um, that's not the scriptures. Like I said, as we close up this chapter here, Matthew chapter 23, gang, is one of the most direct, straightforward, harshest language. And then this scripture that I just read, how in the world are you ever going to escape going to hell? You're not. You guys are on your way to hell. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, verse 34, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Like I said, this was the Lord's last week, and he knows what their agenda is. And some of them will scourge you in the synagogue and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed from the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. All right, let me just explain verse 35 here. He's going way back to the first murder. Cain killed Abel. And so that would have been the first murder. Then this Zechariah, the son of uh, Berechiah, evidently was something that just happened. Whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So we don't have all the details here, but what the Lord is basically saying that this has been going on since Abel. And assuredly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he closes this up and he talks about the judgment that is about to come. And we also see his heart. Um, This is, um, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. And now we see the Lord's heart here. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. 
So he came into his own, his own people. They rejected him. They killed the ones, like John the Baptist, uh, who was a forerunner of the Lord. And because of that, he says, See, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say to you, you will see me no more. Till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this last verse here um, sets us up for where we're going on Sunday. And this verse right here where it says, you're not going to see me again until you say, who's he talking to? He's talking to Israel. And he says, um, judgment is coming, Jerusalem will be destroyed because you didn't know the time of your coming. And you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this will set us up um, for Sunday. He's talking about the judgment that is to come. And in verse 39, no kingdom yet. But this leads to chapter 24. And the disciples, it's finally sinking in because... in uh, just a little teaser for Sunday morning, now it transitions to now the disciples want to sit down and they say, you mean it's not now? You're not going to... It's starting to set in what's about to take place. So it prompts them to ask the question about, Lord, what's it going to be like in the last days? If it's not now, then this prompts... Matthew chapter 24, which is one of the most important prophecy chapters in the entire Bible. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but the worship team got done 10 minutes early. Did you know, anybody notice that? That they got done? You, you noticed it. And um, it's five to eight. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I can't let you go before eight o'clock. Yes, I can. Let's sit down and pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight and the flow of what we've seen in chapter 22 and 23, how you, they came after you and Lord, then you went after them. And Lord, as we tie tonight's study together, prepare our hearts for Sunday morning as we see the transition where the disciples finally understand that the kingdom is not going to come right now. And now they begin to ask questions about when you are going to come. So Lord, we thank you for the Wednesday night Bible study. And we thank you for your word. And uh, we just pray that as we go, that we can meditate upon these things. And we thank you, Lord, that we get a clear picture of your personality and not being afraid in any way, shape, or form to call out hypocrisy. And um, we're grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.